You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. You know, a lot of people talk in big fancy words about climate change or the environment, and they just sort of assume there's nothing more to talk about. The world's either getting hotter or colder, the ice caps are melting. I wrote in a book, this is in 2009, that it's important to look at all angles of this issue and all the research, not just the research that says New York City will be underwater or the Earth's gonna be 20 degrees hotter next year or whatever. So I really appreciated having Pulitzer Prize winner, Elizabeth Colbert on the podcast. She wrote the book, The Sixth Extinction, which she won the Pulitzer Prize for, which is about how man-made technology is changing the Earth in a lot of negative ways. But this new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, is all about the, the positive impact that a lot of man-made technology is having on saving species from going into extinction, or there's technologies for sucking carbon emissions out of the air. Like there are all of these technologies and the people behind those technologies who are quickly developing ideas and are creative that could maybe help us in 
the current disasters that could happen. And regardless of what you believe or disbelieve, it's reality that a lot of species are going extinct and that we do want to have better uses of carbon emissions than just clogging up the atmosphere. So it's really worth paying attention to this stuff and listening to people like Elizabeth Colbert, who is such an expert on this. So with that said, here's Elizabeth and me talking about extinction. Elizabeth, where are you based? I'm sitting in the Berkshires in Western Mass. Do you normally live in New York City or is the Berkshires where you live? I grew up outside New York City, but I, I live in the Berkshires and have for 25 years. Hopefully the Berkshires will survive the next 50 years. It's That's probably one of the safer areas. Well, in fact, do you know the Berkshires? Have you ever been to Williamstown? Uh, no. We have a quite a nice art museum here, which is called the Clark Art Museum, which supposedly the site was chosen because the owner of the collection was afraid of nuclear war. So that's always made me feel some sense of comfort. That that fear exists around you creating the cultural events. Well, no, that he chose Williamstown because he thought, well, in a case of a nuclear war, why would they bother to attack Williamstown? That was basically the idea. Right. I always wonder about New York City, and I lived in New York City almost all my life, that it's the ideal place for anybody to attack for any reason at all. And so yes. and yet so many people choose to to live there, including myself. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's a yeah, you 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 know, life is risk, as they say. So yeah. Well, and this segues into your book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, and also your book, The Sixth Extinction, which won you a Pulitzer Prize. But essentially humans, I think it's in our capacity to be mostly optimistic and it does to some extent stupidly so i mean about a variety of issues but the, the what we're talking about today is is climate change and you know do you think we're not really aware or do you think we're being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic when it comes to the effects man-made uh climate change has on the world well i think one thing that's really not a fully appreciated by the general public, though it's certainly very much a part of all, you know, policy discussions about climate change, is that there's a big time lag in the system that we've already basically guaranteed a lot of climate change that we haven't seen yet. And every day that we go on pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we're guaranteeing more climate change. So I think that that's one of the issues here in terms of being optimistic or pessimistic. You could look at the climate today and say, well, you know, we can adapt to this, we can deal with what's going on now. But what's really important to understand is that we have not yet seen the full effects of what we've already done. And we don't exactly know, I should also add, we don't exactly know what the full effects are going to be. These are subject to much, much study, much, much computing power, but there are error bars here. And so we're not sure exactly if we stopped, even if we stopped emitting CO2 tomorrow, what exactly, what kind of a temperature increase we'd get out at the end. Right. You mentioned in the book that carbon emissions are cumulative so that when you stop emitting carbon emissions, it doesn't necessarily reduce the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. It it just increases more slowly. And, and so to that extent, the effects we're having, which are mentioned in both the sixth extinction and in this brand new book, Under a White Sky, is 
these effects are ongoing. So Arctic caps are melting, rare fish are going extinct. Many species are going extinct, but you explore a lot of issues of different fish and so on in, in this book. You know, you also discuss, is it possible to maybe suck carbon emissions out of the air? Well, that's one of the, you know, to use a sort of bad pun, it's a very, very hot issue right now. So I think that's an excellent pun. As you said, you know, CO2 emissions are, for all intents and purposes, cumulative. And we've already put a lot, a lot of CO2 up there. We've increased, you know, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by, so since, you know, pre-industrial times by almost, you know, 50% at this point. And that's already had very dramatic effects. We really saw that this year, I think. You know, the fires in California, the hurricane season, extraordinary hurricane season, those some of those storms that really rapidly intensified as they went over the Gulf of Mexico, which was very warm. So we're seeing some pretty dramatic changes at the CO2 levels that we are at now. And, and could those changes be explained statistically at all? Like, and I, and I just want to cover all the potential objections. Like, absolutely. Is it unusual to have this level of hurricanes or to what extent were the fires as claimed by some caused by inappropriate forest management or I don't know. And like the fires in Australia were supposed to rage for the entire year, but they were mostly extinguished by March, fortunately. So I want to solve all the objections as well. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very good idea. And I think I will try to be conservative in what I'm saying. How's that? Um, so, yes. you know, what, what we know about fires are that the fire season, so, you know, there are a lot of studies on this, the fire season, what are called sort of fire days, you know, where you would have the right conditions for fires in a place like California have increased pretty dramatically. So, you know, that's a combination of uh, heat, rising heat, also drought out in California, so I think that's a pretty robust phenomenon. Now, you are layering on top of that, as you say, you know, some fire management practices that have fuel build up over the years by actually suppressing fires. Also, people just moving into places that they didn't used to live. So, you know, it's not a, I don't want to claim there's one cause and it's climate change. But in terms of the fires in Australia and the fires in Last winter, their summer, our winter in Australia, the fires this summer uh, and fall in California. I think if you talk to experts, they would pretty much universally say there's definitely a fingerprint of climate change on those. Okay. Now, when we move to hurricanes, these are complicated predictions to make um, because there are some aspects of climate change that would make hurricanes more likely and some aspects that would make them less likely. So the sheer number of hurricanes we got this year was really high. It was a, almost a record-breaking year in terms of the number of named you know, storms there were. And we had to go into the Greek letters, something that we also had to do in 2005. Um, so I don't think there's clear evidence at this point that we're getting more hurricanes. So certainly we did have been getting a lot of them. But I think there's pretty clear evidence that hurricanes are getting stronger and also that they are intensifying more rapidly. So that means they start, you know, they're coming over, in our case, in the U.S., the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and they suddenly balloon from a Category 1 storm to a Category 4 storm within 24 hours. We saw that a couple times this summer. And you also mentioned that temperatures in the oceans are 
the highest they've been in possibly millions of years. And I'm just curious, like how, how do we know what the temperatures were millions of years ago? Well, I have to push back on that a little bit. I don't think I say that temperatures that we know that temperatures in the oceans are the highest they've been in millions of years. That Those are hard things to tease out. I think what I say is we know that carbon dioxide levels <laughs> are mm. the highest they've been in millions of years. How's that? Now, that's okay. quite likely uh, that temperatures are following suit. Um, but as I say, there's also a lag time in the system. So we haven't gotten the full temperature increase yet. So the general sense is temperatures are or are about to be sort of at a level that they haven't been in maybe maybe three million years since a, a period called the Pliocene, when life on Earth was pretty different. Before that was, I should also point out, long before what we call you know anatomically modern humans even evolved. So as a species, we're only about three hundred thousand years old. So three million years is you know two point seven million years before we were even around. Right. I guess the. Um sapiens species or the homo genus has been around 2 million years about, which maybe after this period. So where, given everything that's going on and given that carbon emissions are cumulative in the atmosphere and that we've already set in motion things that we can't necessarily pull back, given if we do nothing, what do you think is going to happen? Well, there's many different roads to nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's the road of we just say, you know, la, 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 our emissions keep going up the way they have in recent decades, you know, just soared, really. That's one road. And that's a, you know, that's a really bad road that leads to temperature increases by the end of this century of a really ghastly, seven degrees Fahrenheit, let's say, eight degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, just really kind of unimaginable temperature increases for the kind of world that we live live in now, the world we're adapted to, the world that modern society is adapted to. Now, then there's the, we work really hard to bring down emissions, but we don't quite do it fast enough. We don't keep things under this sort of these thresholds that people have proposed, two degrees Celsius. So it's around three and a half Fahrenheit or 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then we get a lot of very serious impacts. Once again, as I said, we're already seeing very serious impacts. We see very serious sea level rise. Some of our coastal cities are in trouble. We see people in parts of the world that are already very hot, having more and more uh, times when you know, life is just almost on the verge of what humans can tolerate in terms of their heat tolerance. We see where you can plant different crops moving around. We see potential serious water shortages in parts of the world. Once again, thing we're already starting to see in some parts of the world. So that's a very different world, but perhaps one that we can uh, negotiate our way through. Then there's the proposal, you know, we're going to reach zero carbon emissions, you know, very soon. And then we're also going to, and this gets back to your previous question, we're going to suck carbon out of the air. We're going to come up with some way to actually take some of the carbon that we've already put up, put up there and suck it out of the air. And that, that will also help to bring the climate back, you know, once again, not right away because all of these things have a time lag associated with them, but eventually we will, you know, sort of bring it back to the climate that you and I grew up with, or even a pre-industrial climate possibly. So these are all possibilities and they're all very much on the table right now. Right. So a seven degree change, as you say, you know, we're already starting to see heat levels where in some parts of the world are intolerable to the humans living there or could be, could be close to that. 
what's like a worst case scenario with seven degrees? What else could happen? Are cities going to go underwater like Miami or, or New York or other coastal cities? Well, you know, once again, I'm not a climate scientist. I sometimes play one, you know, on podcasts. I'm relying on you to play one. Yeah. Okay. I think, you know, sea level rise is a function of two things. It's heating up your water, your oceans, and warm water expands. You know, warm water just takes up more volume than cold water. And then there is melting off the ice on land. So melting the Greenland ice sheet, melting mountain glaciers, melting Antarctica, all those things, heating up water and and what's called the thermal expansion of water, that's pretty straightforward. But once you start to melt a really big ice sheet, it's unclear what the dynamics are and it's unclear how long that takes. But certainly, I think this is a fairly uncontroversial statement. If you were to get to 2100, you were to have you know, a basically a seven degree temperature, average global temperature increase, you would have faded these ice sheets to melt. It would be very, very difficult to walk that back. And then you are looking at literally tens and possibly hundreds of feet of sea level rise. So certainly coastal cities, all coastal cities, virtually all coastal cities at that point would be in big trouble. But, you know, before you get to that point, even you get to potentially vast swaths of the world where, you know, billions of people live being water stressed, water deprived. You get to really big parts of the world where, you know, probably the staple crops can't grow anymore. So we would be really be looking at a really, a really radically transformed world where, you know, billions of people would be on the move because where they lived just was really literally uninhabitable or just on the verge of survivable because of water stress, and crop failure. And as you mentioned, there's a lot more species extinction than the normal background extinction that has occurred over throughout all of history. And just as there's been man-made manipulations to the environment that have potentially caused the problems that we're in, there's a lot of man-made manipulation now to try to save some of these species. And this is what you write about in Under a White Sky, which has just come out how did you start exploring this? What 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 made you interested in this to do it as a book? Which is it's almost like a sequel to the sixth extinction. It's more extinctions and <laughs> more more man made manipulation, but this time it's more positive man made manipulation. Well, you're really into species dying. A few years ago, I took a reporting trip to Hawaii and I report on a, a project that became known as the Super Coral Project. And the idea behind that project which was run by Ruth Gates, a scientist in Hawaii, and Madeline Van Oppen, a scientist in Australia. The idea was corals are these tiny little animals that build coral reefs, and they like warm water. They only live in warm water, in fact, but they're actually quite heat sensitive, and they don't like the fact that water temperatures are rising. So you're getting these events, which people have probably heard of, called coral bleaching events when the corals turn white and basically die. And it's having a dreadful effect on reefs all around the world. And so the idea behind the Super Coral Project was we've altered the oceans so much, they're warming up, corals don't like it. Can we find a way to basically goose up evolution, speed up evolution, get these corals to the point where they could survive a warmer ocean? If we just let them sit there, evolution's too slow, but maybe if we goose it along, we can get to that point. This whole 
project. It's a really fascinating project, and it really intrigued me. And it introduced this idea that, you know, we had manipulated the whole world. We'd changed the climate of the whole world. And now we were going to go and try to, you know, manipulate the species that live in the world to ensure their survival. And I started to see that pattern out in the world wherever I went. And that was the inspiration for Under a White Sky. Is this sort of the next step in our long and very complicated relationship to the natural world? Is there any danger that men don't really understand the interlocking effects of all the different species? You know, when one species dies, both the predators and the prey, their ecosystems change, and that has a ripple effect all throughout nature. Is it too much if we're kind of playing God to even save species? Well, that's the question of our time to a certain extent. I mean, one the question of whether we can, you know, having unwittingly changed the planet in ways that we now find unfortunate, unpleasant, fatal to many species and, you know, potentially many people. Can we now consciously come up with manipulations to counter that? And as you say, when you mess around or try to manipulate parts of really complicated systems, you can get some nasty surprises. So, you know, some of the ecological messes that we're now trying to clean up, you know, I tell the story in the book of the cane toad, which is a toad that was imported to Australia in the 1930s. It was supposed to eat beetle grubs that were plaguing Australia's sugar crop, but instead the toad, uh, it was uninterested in, you know, cane beetle grubs. It just ate everything in sight. It migrated all across the country. It's spreading even as we speak. It's taking more and more territory. It's a very poisonous toad. And Australia's wildlife has not evolved to avoid eating it. So many, many native Australian species are crashing, have crashed, because they consume these poisoned toads. So now people are trying to figure out very high-tech ways, including, you know, genetic engineering, uh, for how to either eliminate the toads or reduce their effects. And the question of whether we can make up for having made, you know, one pretty bad boo-boo, which was introducing this toad into the landscape where it didn't belong, with another manipulation. These are questions that we're going to be and already are, you know, confronting all the time, basically, uh, as we move forward, because we have our thumb on the scale in basically every ecosystem in the world, in some cases uh, knowingly, and in a lot of cases just, you know, willy-nilly. So what can we do? Is it a matter of coming up with hundreds of technological innovations to save different species, suck out carbon emissions and renewable energy, like, you know, fusion or solar energy or whatever, powering our grid. Is that possible? Are we going to succeed at that? Or is it kind of hopeless given that we've already set in motion things that we can't take back? Well, I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> one of the privileges, I guess, one of the of being a journalist is, you know, I went out, I reported this book. I wanted to draw attention to a pattern that I think, as I say, is becoming is is already prevalent, you know, where we try to come up with a a new manipulation to counter the old manipulation. Uh, I think that is our future, basically. Um, whether it's going to work or not, though, you know, I, I'm going to, I'll, I'll bounce that back to you. You know, you're, you're, you are as qualified to say as I am 
whether that's going to work. Um, you know, when you put it that way, like, are we really going to, you know, counter everything that we've done uh, one manipulation at a time? Uh, it doesn't seem, you know, wildly likely, but people are very smart and very ingenious. And we're here, we're all still here, despite having really very, very fundamentally tampered with a lot of the most basic uh biological and geochemical cycles on earth, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, you know, you name it, we've tampered with it. And I don't want to say that we're not going to be able to figure something out. And some of the manipulations I talk in the book about in the book are very, very broad scale. They're really, they're not just, you know, going in and trying to save one species. They're really trying to potentially re-engineer the whole planet to make up for the ways that we have re-engineered the whole planet. So they're planetary scale interventions. There's also, and you talk about this, you, there's also political solutions, but they're also tricky. Like some countries like the United States, for instance, have created uh, a lot of the carbon emissions that are currently in the atmosphere and other countries like many African or South American countries have not. And as we start reducing or eliminating emissions, we're asking all of these countries to participate in these solutions, even if they weren't, even if they're still developing countries and they need to get their economies going and carbon emissions are, are critical to that. How do we solve that issue or how do we look at that issue? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a huge one, I think. And I think the thinking goes, the most optimistic scenario goes, we as the, as the US, as the developed world, produce technologies, and to a certain extent this is happening, right, the cost of solar power has plunged over the last, say, two decades, right, so that now putting up solar is the cheapest form of new energy. So if I'm adding capacity, it's the cheapest way to do it. So if you could make alternative forms of power just more desirable than fossil fuels, cheaper, more economical, then maybe you could coax the developing world. And if you had what is often called in these very complicated global agreements, technology transfers, there also should be probably a lot of money changing hands just to help out developing countries that will be disproportionately hurt by climate change, even though, as you say, they've contributed very, very little to the problem. And the U.S. really needs to be, now this is sort of my political analysis, which people can accept or reject, obviously, I would argue the U.S. really would, needs to be at the forefront of that. We have been a pretty bad actor in the climate world. We have a new administration that's come in and vowed to be a good actor. And so we'll see what happens. I think the world is really yearning for American leadership on this, I think, because the problem simply cannot be solved without it. You know, I always wonder, like ever since the 1830s, there's been books about how the world's going to be overpopulated in 10 years. And, you know, in the 70s, there was a lot of worry or early 70s, late 60s, there was a lot of worry about global cooling, which then became more about global warming. Now, given our technology and our scientific understanding of the planet has also gotten more sophisticated, so that could explain the fact that the world hasn't ended yet. I mean, I remember, I think it was in Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, he was basically saying by 1980, England would be starving. There would, wouldn't be enough food to feed the people in England. And of course, technology sort of adapts with the problems as you're starting to, as you point out in the book, but could it be that 
you know, all those predictions were wrong, but now we have enough understanding and when we're seeing in our, with our own eyes, the effects of it, that this is the real deal now. <laughs> you have asked the, you know, $64 quadrillion question, and I do not have the answer for that. You know, doomsday predictions going back to Malthus, right, who argued in right. the, you know, late when there were only around a billion people on the planet that inevitably you had to have wars and famines to reduce the human population because they're just was no way to increase agricultural production as fast as people were capable of of increasing the human population. And then you had a lot of changes in the world, you know, which included things like vaccines and population, you know, started to increase very, very dramatically. So in the course of my lifetime and your lifetime too, probably, you know, human population has more than doubled. So that's a pretty short span of time to go through a doubling of the population. So as you say, you got predictions in the 60s and 70s that that food production, once again, just couldn't keep up. And we then we had the Green Revolution, and it did keep up, it managed to keep up, which was amazing for a doubling of the human population. And now we are facing again, we are, our population is still increasing, not as fast, but we're facing the question, can we keep up just to feed the world? And then what are the other environmental side effects, the unintended consequences of that in terms of unraveling ecosystems potentially that we depend on in terms of killing off other species? So all of these questions, and then you overlay climate change on top of that, which was not even on the horizon in the 60s, though it was definitely already being set in motion because we were burning a lot of fossil fuels, though, once again, not nearly what we're burning today. So all these questions of whether we can sort of get through this moment, what the great naturalist E.O. Wilson has called the bottleneck, potentially this moment of maximum human impacts on the planet. You know, can we get through this century, as it were, with as much of the world intact, you know, as many ecosystems, as many species intact as possible. That's sort of the question in front of us. And I don't, I don't have the answer to that, you know, and I don't know that we'll make the right choice. Um, I don't know that we'll make, I don't know what choices we're going to make. No one can really tell you that. And, and you have to layer on top of that. We're not even exactly sure what the right choices are, but lots and lots and lots of very, very smart people are working on them. So that's, I suppose, the good news. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home 
might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I wonder if throughout history we've sort of gotten lucky because of technology also. Like, you know, a great example is the big environmental problem in the 1890s in New York City was that horses would leave 
you know, a foot of shit all over the streets that would have to be removed every, every night. And people were predicting that New York City would be buried in shit by 1910. And of course, the invention of the automobile and the wide acceptance of, of cars, which, which ultimately led to the increase in carbon emissions. But the cars right. solved our century, you know, 130 years ago, environmental problem by luck almost. I wonder if we'll have similar luck somehow that some new technology with some other use will end up being the magic Alexa yeah. that will save us. Yeah. I honestly don't know. And so, you know, the point of under white sky was to really go out and look at some really cutting edge technologies and some technologies that aren't even technologies, you know, yet really, to be honest, their, their ideas. So for example, the last chapter of the book, the book gets its title from this idea that, well, we've, messed around with the atmosphere so significantly. We've poured so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that we're warming the planet very significantly. What if we uh, messed around with the stratosphere? What if we put some sort of reflective material in the stratosphere and bounce sunlight back to space? So we were basically reducing the amount of sunlight hitting the earth. And then we could kind of even things out. So the warming would be counteracted you know, by this cooling. And, and volcanoes do that. That's what volcanoes do. They spew a lot of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, and that produces a temporary uh, cooling effect. So could we basically imitate volcanoes, but on a massive scale and more or less, I don't want to say forever, but for as long as we're emitting fossil fuels as that. And this is an idea that some people find absolutely radically insane, and that some people say, well, it's our best hope given what we've already done. And if managed properly, maybe could buy us some time to bring our emissions down and avert the worst effects of climate change. So there are a lot of, you know, very smart people, as I said, and very dedicated people working on on these ideas. Will they come and save us? That, once again, is a question I can't answer. If you, I guess, were a betting person, well, you'd say you could go either way. You'd say, yeah, we're, we're here, despite all of the predictions and we're actually, you know, aggregate on aggregate and maybe until COVID hit, the world was doing better and better, you know, even in terms of reducing very drastic poverty. But how many times can you play that trick? I guess we're, we're determined to find out. How's that? Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. And <laughs> you, 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 I was intrigued by one company you talk about, uh, Climeworks, which you could basically trade off your, you know, you could buy their ability to get rid of your carbon emissions, like whatever, how, whatever your carbon footprint is, they could um, have negative carbon emissions and, and store, you know, suck those emissions out of the air and hide them. Uh, <laughs> it, it, what about reusing carbon emissions? So for instance, when a factory spews out carbon emissions, maybe you can funnel that back into the factory to provide a, a source of fuel. Well, there are a lot of people working on that too, the sort of recycling carbon. And the problem that you are facing. So I'll start with the story of, of what I did. I went to Iceland where uh, Climeworks, as you point out, a, a company that's actually based in Switzerland, what they do is they have a machine. It looks like a, a big air conditioner, basically. It's sitting out in Iceland by a geothermal power plant. And they're actually, I, I just read, doing a big ramp up at this site. So they're going to put more of these air conditioner light machines there. What these machines do is they take just the air that's flowing through, they have a chemical inside, the CO2 reacts with the chemical, it basically binds with the chemical, 
it's out of the air now, and then you heat it up and you drive off the CO2, you put it in a big bladder-like thing, and then at this site in Iceland, they pump it deep underground into this volcanic rock uh, where it literally mineralizes. It, it turns into calcium carbonate. So this is what's called carbon dioxide removal, and there are all sorts of possible ways to do it. And one thing that you could do is at a power plant where, let's say, or at a manufacturing facility where the CO2 emissions are much higher than in the ambient air, you could take the CO2 out of the waste stream. It takes a lot of energy, but it certainly can be done. And then you would have to dis either dispose of it or, as you say, recycle it. You could maybe turn it into fuel, back into fuel. And the, and the problem with that, the only problem with it, it's, it's doable, definitely. People you know, would certainly tell you it's the chemistry is all there. It's just, it takes energy at every step of the way. So, you know, why do that? Why not just, you know, maybe put up a solar panel instead? You have to question why go through all these steps and take all these energy. If you're, if you're producing that energy using fossil fuels, then you're just making the problem worse. You know, Unless so you're able to suck out more than the energy it takes to produce it. Right. Yes. So, you know, efficiencies are incredibly important and they're, you know, definitely lots of what's again very smart chemists working to try to improve that but i mean it's theoretically possible that you could get the losses down pretty low and that you could have a, a loop where you you know put co2 into the air take it out make the fuel use it again uh, and i think that that will be a part of you know what we do going forward because there are things that are there are processes that it's very hard. It's very hard to see, for example, how you're going to keep airplanes in the air without fossil fuels. So you could argue you're going to need, you're going to need some way uh, if you're going to bring emissions to zero or to net zero, it's often called net zero. And what's built into net zero is, well, we're going to put some things up there, but then we're also going to take some CO2 out of the air. So whenever you hear net zero, you should realize that behind that is some plan to suck CO2 out of the air because otherwise you don't get to net zero. Yeah, that's, I did not know until reading your book that carbon emissions were cumulative. That was a, a new thing for me. All these people you, you profile in the book who are dedicating their lives to saving, let's say some rare carp from extinction or some other species from extinction. What do you think these people have in common that they devote their lives to you know, essentially saving a particular species? Well, I, I met some, you know, really wonderful people um, and got to go to some great places. So, you know, one place I got with a book was called Devil's Hole, which is a, a little canyon in the middle of the Mojave Desert, which is connected to this big underground aquifer. And at that particular spot, the aquifer sort of comes to the surface and you get this beautiful pool of water in the middle of the Mojave at the bottom of this canyon. And there's the rarest fish in the world, which is known as the devil's hole pupfish, lives in this canyon. And back in the 60s, they started to pump water out of that aquifer. And it uh, very, very nearly drove the devil's hole pupfish to extinction. But once again, here's a case of people stepping in to try to undo the damage that people have done. And so they stepped in. They have gone so far as to build a totally fake canyon. So there's one population of fish still in the real canyon, very small population. And then there's another population in a totally fake canyon, which is basically indoors. 
And there is a group of people from the National Wildlife Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who have kept these beautiful little fish. They're about an inch long. They're only about an inch long. They're they're very bright blue. They're very beautiful, alive. And they get you know calls in the middle of the night if some machinery malfunctions. They are completely dedicated to keeping this fish alive. And so far, I will give them credit, they have managed to do so. And I think that what unites all these people who are working on these projects is a real sense of commitment to leaving the world a better, or at least, let's put it this way, not worse place uh, than we found it. And I am filled with admiration for all of them, really, everyone I met in the process of reporting that book, I thought was doing something that he or she, you know, you, you, one might question, is this the right thing to do? But they were, they were doing it out of, for the best motives uh, and hoping, genuinely hoping to make a difference. And just out of curiosity, this is sort of unrelated, but is, is that, is Devil's Hole the only place where these pupfish exist? Yeah, it's the Devil's Hole pupfish is said to have the smallest, you know, habitat of any fish in the world. Somehow this fish, it's its a bit of a mystery. Somehow a fish, you know, ended up sort of marooned in one pool in the middle of the Mojave. And no one knows exactly when or how it got there, but it evolved to become its own species. And it's a very distinctive species it, it, because it lost somewhere in this evolutionary process. There are many species of these little pupfish which are so named because when they sort of tussle, they look, they remind people of puppies. The devil's hole pupfish lost what are known as its pelvic fins. So you can tell immediately if a fish is a devil's hole pupfish because it doesn't have these fins. And it evolved under really tough, tough circumstances. It is very warm. The water is very warm. It's heated geothermally. It's like 93 degrees. And it has very low oxygen. And most fish not survive. They would just, you know, croak right away. But the devil's whole pupfish has evolved to live under these very tough circumstances. And interestingly enough, only under those tough circumstances. So in the fake devil's hole, you know, they keep the water at the same temperature. They keep the oxygen very low uh, because that is what the fish has evolved to survive in. And what, what do they eat? Uh, they eat tiny little creatures, uh, you know, tiny little shrimp, tiny little algae, you know, their food is basically heading towards the microscopic and they actually get uh, supplemental feeding um, even in the real habitat, the real devil's hole, you know, to, to help them survive because they're so close to the edge of extinction. How deep is the devil's hole water? Well, no one knows. That's a really interesting point. It, as I say, it's connected to this aquifer. People have gone down as far as 500 feet and not found the bottom. And in fact, in a sort of tragic side story here, some divers went down some in the 60s. Three divers went down, two of them never came back and their bodies have never been found. So they're down there somewhere. Wow. So, I mean, that could be part of the answer to how the pupfish got there is perhaps this is connected up to, you know, some primal area of the ocean. Well, that's a, that's an interesting theory. I mean, I think people think that they could not have come from underground because that would be just too tough for a fish. But, you know, it, nothing's impossible. And as I say, no one, the sort of theory, the working theory is that at some point the area was wetter, at some point the fish washed in uh, and they got marooned there as if on an island. But no one is sure of that. You know, I always appreciate 
books like yours, which are looking for solutions, not just for all these species from going extinct, but the overriding message is, you know, hu humans are in danger of going extinct if these things happen over the next century, two centuries, three centuries, however long it takes. But, and this is not really the point of your book, but what makes humans so special that we should care if we're extinct or not? <laughs> like many, tens of thousands <laughs> of species go yeah. extinct every year. One of these years, it's going to be humans. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things I'll say to that. You know, I, I wrote a whole book called The Sixth Extinction. And the question that always got asked after that is, how can we prevent humans from going extinct? And one of my conclusions after having you know written the book was, well, of all the species that are likely to be able to survive with humans, you know, humans are up near the top of the list because we are setting the rules here. Now, we could do something so stupid, you know, that it would undermine, as I say, all these systems that we depend on. But there's almost 8 billion people on the world and, you know, alive today. And to go extinct, you got to get to, you know, zero. So that's a lot of people you'd have to do in. I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's not my major worry right now. How's that? Now, I think there are many, 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 many thousands of species that are going to go extinct, you know, before we will. But your more profound question, should we care? Uh, you know, we're humans. Um, you know, many of us have children and hope to have grandchildren and um, like to imagine a world of humanity moving forward. We're very attached, you know, to ourselves. We always think of ourselves as special. Uh, deservedly or or undeservedly as a species, you know, but the, definitely the grand message of the history of life on earth is that everything will go extinct eventually. Yes, Homo sapiens, you know, there's no reason to believe that Homo sapiens won't eventually go extinct. Now, a species should have a lifetime of, you know, let's say around a million years. So, you know, if we're only two or 300,000 years into it, you know, we should be able to last another several hundred thousand years. Uh, if we don't muck it up. Well, Elizabeth Colbert, Pulitzer Prize winner of the book, The Sixth Extinction. And now you have a new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. And that future includes this almost partnership between humans and many of the species almost on the verge of extinction because of all these changes in the climate. Plus the book is about all the technologies and man-made manipulations to now help what previously technology had caused. And it's a fascinating look at the people involved in saving all these species and the new technologies that we should look towards. Great book. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and explaining all these things to me. Sorry if any of my questions were naive or, or simple, but I'm learning. No bad questions, as they say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.